to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Diane Crowther to the Intuitive Insights podcast, who really doesn't need any introduction, to be fair. Diane has been Chief Exec of High Speed One for the past four years, is a non-exec director for the East West Railway Company, an active board trustee for the Railway Children Charity, and as if that wasn't enough, last July was named as chair for the National Skills Academy for Rail, replacing Mike Brown. Diane is also well known for her significant efforts to improve diversity and inclusion in the UK transport industry, and in this feature-length episode shares her career story, her views on leadership and her ambitions for the rail industry as we move into a period of significant change and transformation. I hope you enjoy. Diane, hello and welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast. I'm absolutely delighted that you've uh, taken the time to join me. Thank you so much. And uh, on the basis it's your fault that we're doing it in the first place, then it seems only (laughs) right that you should be a guest. Um, because going back to one of our conversations over the summer, when you suggested to me that this might be something that uh, that I could do, um, and I immediately had a comfort zone moment where I kind of, oh no, I don't want to do that. Um, and uh, and then your confidence in me to do it was what actually enabled me to let go of the ledge. So thank you for that, and thank you for being here. I'm going to hand over to you um, in terms of this uh, the first part of the podcast I'd love to know more about your career in rail how did you get into the industry in the first place and um, talk me through the headlines of, of what you've done so far and I'd love to know more about your current role as chief exec at high speed one brilliant I'm just gonna have to sort the dog out <laughs> oh no he's all right you can hear me speaking to someone so he's growling <laughs> Right, right, okay. So, right, okay. Um, so, how did I get into the industry? And Nina, it's brilliant to sort of be be kind of talking with you today. Uh, that yeah, I didn't quite envisage being part of your experiment, so to speak. But it's great to be. Here. <laughs> so, and I've watched them, and I think they're brilliant. You're doing a great job. So, uh, so how did I get into the industry? Um, uh, I wanted a graduate job that was a little bit different to the norm. And certainly, when I was applying, gosh, 35 years ago. Um, the railway stood out because they were different. You got an awful lot of accountability very early on in your career. Um, you got to work outside, you got to get your hands dirty. Um, and that was one of the key things that really, really attracted to me. I, I couldn't really see myself you know, working in a bank, sat behind a desk, uh, working in retail. I worked in retail and, and it didn't really float my boat. So, so the railways were a great kind of transition. <laughs> Can you hear it? It's Denise in the background. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless him. Good grief, he's huge. <laughs> My word. I've got to let him out. Hang on. I'll do that. <laughs> Come on, you. Right. Okay, so I was talking about um, a lot of responsibility early on in your career. Um, and variety as well. And I think that's one of the reasons I've stayed in the rail sector. It's one of the few sectors where you can get to do everything. I think that's one of the things that we undersell. Um, (coughs) Part of my kind of uh, role at the moment, or not not necessarily at High Speed One, is is I chair NSAR, National Skills Academy for Rail. 
And last month we launched Roots into Rail, which is basically, you know, getting railways out to people thinking about, can I, you know, what should I be choosing as a career? And it doesn't matter if you're young, middle-aged, old, you know, the railway has got something for you and we need to get that message out there. And that's something I'm passionate about. I've moved around. I've moved around the sector, I've run train operating companies, I've worked in infrastructure, I've been the person at headquarters, and it's fabulous, you know, but it also puts me in a really strong place to understand the system, you know, and the railway is a complicated system, uh, so it's, it's fundamentally important that the people who work in it understand the system, respect the system, you know, and learn how to kind of work within that system as well. So, yeah. uh, in, in terms of you know, where did I start? So I came off the graduate training scheme, uh, very wet behind the ears, you know, a young kind of 21 year old many years ago. Um, and I was thrown in as a station manager at, at Peckham Rye. So I had 10 stations um, un under my uh, under my accountability, about six, 60 or 70 odd staff. And I, I've never been to South London in my life, <laughs> run stations. Um, and being called out at, you know, two or three in the morning for yet another ticket office break in, uh, you know, a train derailment somewhere. Uh, it was, you know, it was kind of um, character building, shall we say. Uh, you learned very quickly about what to do. Um, you know, I was used to pop off at the local police station and if I was being called out to Herne Hill or Brixton or Streatham Hill. Um, I've told stories in the past where I've been called out to sort of Streatham and I've forgotten my kind of station keys. I've had to go in through the back car park and navigate my way through the ladies of the night who used to take their clients there. But you know, those that that's how it was all those years ago. You know, character building, you learnt how the railway ran kind of 24-7, you know, and, and it and it was good and it, it gave me, you know, a fantastic grounding, a fantastic grounding to kind of help me, you know, on my career really. Um, I was fortunate that when I joined the railway, uh, we were just moving towards privatisation. Uh, the, the industry had just experienced sectorisation, which was intercity, uh, network southeast, Red Star parcels. Uh, you know, you forget about all of those, and of course, not forgetting you know regional railways. Um, and that was uh, you know British Rail's first attempt to you know to try and respond to the passenger and, and differentiate you know the, the product that was on offer. Um, so post sectorisation, it was privatisation, as I've said. Now, what a great opportunity for you know people like myself and my peer group at the time, because the industry saw many, many people leave, which meant that people like myself had the opportunity to step up, you know, and step up, and, and people took a risk on us, you know, to do the type of jobs that there was nobody left in the industry to do anymore, um, you know, and that was great, and I was really lucky that that, that people were prepared to take a risk on me, and um, Philip Benham. Uh, gave me my first big big kind of promotion uh, when I went to run the south end of uh, the east coast main line um, Brian Birdsall then became the sort of the, the, the regional director and you know and these are sort of people who you know I think about now you know I give chances to 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 young people you know come and cut your teeth on HS1 come and cut your teeth in, in another part of the organization because I know full well that there are an awful lot of people <laughs> that put their reputation at stake for me in, in, in my career. And, and, you know, and I didn't want to let them down. And, and in the same way, I don't want to let my, you know, the youngsters coming through down by sort of saying, well, no, you don't have enough experience to do that because you've got to give people experience and you've got to give them the opportunity. Um, so, so, yeah, very, very fortunate uh, privatisation. I went to work in Railtrack. 
um and i worked on the station side love stations that's my heart that's you know that that's that's where i was brought up um and and stayed stayed with rail track and ended up um heading up all of the managed stations for rail track and, and at quite a young age being a direct report into a board member and decided that so whilst i knew an awful lot about stations i didn't know much about anything else in rail track uh, and clearly it was all about track uh, uh you know track infrastructure so um uh, so i persuaded the then uh, commercial director richard middleton um uh, you know to sponsor me and you know and persuade a route to take on you know diane as a, a customer relationship executive um so off i went to look after children railways um so and that was quite a challenging role adrian shooter who's very well known and very challenging you know very successful in in terms of his management buyout very passionate about children you know and expected 150 percent from you know from the supply chain um, and, and that was great because you really, really had to be on your toes. You really needed to be thinking customer all the time, um, you know. And then that, that was that was a good grounding for me. So it was a great way of me finding out an awful lot about kind of how the routes operated, uh, what happened in in the track access world, um, and and gave me a really, really good kind of you know breadth across the rest of rail track. Um, and gave me access to, to you know to you know lots of different people and a better understanding in terms of, of how the whole system operated um i stayed i stayed as a cre and you know between all of that there was like maternity leave and and, and things like that and i was always very kind of pragmatic i led um for the the west coast the the project evergreen um initiative which was the the chiltern get a longer you know that they were the only franchise that got a franchise extension when john morton sort of said you know come on down make me an offer you know everyone's sort of saying um you know we want longer franchises well come and make me an offer well you know we did <laughs> the children the rail track did we did make an offer and it got taken up uh, and it was really exciting to be involved in that and actually kind of have that that long-term vision you know for a piece of the railway um that you know had been kind of un under underutilized and now when you look at Chilterns today and what you know people like Rob Brickhouse have done with it and you know more recently Mary Hewitt you, you kind of you know I take a step back and I feel quite proud that I had something to do with that you know I, I helped create that vision um, and now when you see East West Railway coming through and, and I sit on the board of East West Railway that's really really close to my heart and you kind of think well you know East West probably wouldn't have happened you know without you know the vision that some people many many years ago had the Chiltern, you know, doubling a single track railway, new stations, Warwick Parkway, you know, all of those. You know, Chilterns were incredibly innovative and 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 very very strategic in their approach. Uh, and it was you know it was a great experience for me to be not only the CRE there, uh, but also to then be given the sort of the program management responsibility to actually kind of lead that piece of work. Um, well, track then went into administration. That was a that was a bit wasn't quite on the kind of the agenda so to speak for, for, for many of us and and it went into administration when i was on maternity leave funnily enough and when i came back in came back into the organization and it was it was visibly different you know palpably different it was almost like the life had been sucked out um of, of, of people um and i just looked around and just thought I'm not too sure I want to stay here, <laughs> uh, you know, because this this is you know this is quite soul destroying. And I think because 
I've been out of the business and then come back into it after maternity leave. I probably felt it more than than, than other people, other you know, other members of Rail Track had, had, had not necessarily got used to it, but had accepted it because they'd been there when it had happened, and I just came back in afterwards. Um, and I was um, given the opportunity to go and be the commercial director for Arriva Trains Northern, um, and. And I did hesitate about that because um, I live in Hertfordshire and, and York's quite a long way from Hertfordshire. So I had a young family at the time. So I was either going to move my family or have a really long commute. So I ended up having a long commute. Um, but it was a right decision for me. And, and I went to work for um, an old colleague of mine called Ray Price. Uh, and we'd worked together at, under Intercity down at King's Cross. And, and he was the ops manager and I was the retail manager. Um, and you know the two of us got on quite well and and he was the md and and he needed he said you know he needed someone to come and you know kiss babies as he put it because he wasn't very good at it <laughs> so, or look after stakeholders um so i arrived and the, the headline in in the you know i can't remember now i think it was the york telegraph or something was um diane takes on the job that few would want <laughs> so i'm just like great <laughs> what does that mean and, and, and the reasons for that was uh, Arriva Trains Northern at the time uh, were in dispute with uh, the RMT, um, TSSA, um, and indeed ASLEF. So uh, you know, they had strikes um, forming with every single kind of staff group, um, and you know they they were in, in quite a lot of, of bother. They were running uh, a, a kind of an amended timetable. Um, you know everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Uh, yeah, my view was well. It, anything I do isn't going to make it worse. <laughs> so, so, and I thought, okay, well, you know, let 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 let's go up there and 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 see what's what, what's needed. Um, and it was really a, a back to basics campaign. So tell tell people what we can do. Tell them when we're going to do it, and then do it. You build up trust and you build up confidence. Um, and that's not that wasn't just our. Um, our stakeholders that was our our internal employees as well who had gone through a torrid time an absolutely torrid time with uh, the previous franchise holder and, and the story story is that Arriva got got in into Arriva Trains Northern and indeed uh, Mersey Travel because they wanted to buy a bus company <laughs> and they ended up buying two rail franchises um, <laughs> and and they bought kind of two two rail franchises that um, had uh, been sort of subject to quite a lot of kind of cost management control you know a lot of things stripped out of the organization so so the added value stuff just wasn't there anymore and even during the during the strikes when you know the management team were deployed to the likes of Leeds ticket office and uh, you know and I remember counting cash <laughs> you know in in the ticket office in the cash room at, at, at Leeds because the you know the cash counter didn't work you know and used to get in 30 grand you know per shift and it's just like well I'm not surprised the staff were on strike you know they don't have the basics you know to do their job properly um you know so it's really simple things so so there were some benefits you know of doing that because when we came out of that dispute situation we were able to move kind of quite quickly to put a lot of things right and you know and a lot of the things were just like basics you know absolute basics so so it's back to basics from you know from an employee perspective but also back to basics in terms of how we communicate with our stakeholders and, and indeed passengers um and indeed uh, you know, after two, two or three years, we, we completely changed the tide 
um, and rather than a, a post bag full of you know people wanting you know our heads on a stick outside main head headquarters York you know our post bag was full of people sort of saying we really hope you keep the franchise you know we like Arriva now you know so so we, we achieved that turnaround really just by doing you know the basic stuff doing what it says on the tin if you're going to run a train run it <laughs> if you're going to give people compensation give it to them yeah you know no bells and whistles just do what it says on the tin um, yeah, and, and we achieved that turnaround and, and took the you know took the franchise back 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 to profit, and we were in a profit share arrangement with the DFT at the time, so everybody was happy. Uh, the franchise was then awarded to Serco, um, and uh, you know, and the, the lovely Heidi Mottram came in to be the MD, and, and I'd recruited her into Arriva to be to be the commercial director because partway through my story with with, with Arriva, I became the MD as well. <laughs> so right. you know, and, and probably one of the biggest challenges I had being the MD was you know having to communicate with the whole team that we weren't going to be put forward to the next round of the franchise. Um, and that was quite tough because that meant we still had another 14 months running this franchise and we knew we, you know, as a management team, we probably weren't still going to be here because as we all know, there's an inverse relationship between your seniority in an organisation and your ability to keep your job once, you know, once the hands change. So one of the things we did is we said, right, as a, as a senior management team, we're going to make a commitment. All of us, we're going to stay here until the last day. And we did. And we communicated that to, to, the, wider, to the wider team. And that was... Probably one of the best things that we did because, sorry, that was one of the best things we did because that, that gave people stability and certainty. Um, so everybody knew, okay, so, so this team are going to stay in place. Uh, the second thing we did was we, we rewrote the business plan. Um, and we sort of said, you know, no, no, okay, we're here for 14 months. Um, you know, we've still got to deliver stuff. And this is what our new business plan is. So we did that. We set objectives on that. Um, we then looked at, you know, key people who were flight risk and sort of said, okay, who do we need to keep in the organisation so, so that we maintain this going concern? So, so we, we made sure that, you know, the key people were kept in the organisation and, you know, could, could stay and wanted to stay, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and therefore didn't pose a flight risk. And then I spoke to uh, my uh, chief exec at the time, um, Bob Davis in, in, in Arriva, uh, and, and he was a great guy. I really enjoyed working for him. Um, and I remember him giving me a lift home once from, um, I think it was Huntingdon when all the wires were down <laughs> in his chauffeur driven car because he was stuck as well. So, so I'll give you a lift home, darling. But, you know, really nice guy. And um, he, I, I sort of said to him, look, Bob, I said, I, you know, quick, quick, you know, straight question. I want to know what your, your approach is going to be now that you know that we're not being put forward to the next franchise. Because if you're going to asset strip or you're going to keep this as a going concern, I said, because if you're going to ask it strip, I'm not interested. I sort of said, and neither will be the rest of the management team. He goes, no, Diane, it's a going concern. You know, we will continue to arrest to invest in Arriva Trains Northern. We see, you know, the reputation in a, you know, on on Arriva Trains Northern as being fundamental to us bidding for other franchises. So that was a really important conversation for us because it kind of set the stall out for how we could approach our last 14 months, and we did approach it as a going concern. Um, you know, we continue to invest. Um, we continued, you know, to to run schemes for for sort of staff development. Um, and you know, and then I think we all felt quite proud when we handed the keys over to Serco that it was a going concern. Yeah, most definitely a going concern. Um, from there, for, from Arriva, I went to um, Network Rail. <laughs> uh, that was interesting. So, um, and 
and I went as the route director, so uh, in York, so looking after the East Coast Main Line, working for the you know fantastic Mr. Gisby, uh, you know who's you know a, a you know a, a fantastic friend of mine, you know someone who I hugely respect and admire, um, and you know and he's done so many things for the rail sector, uh, you know with his vision, his innovation, um, and also his his passion to you know continuously improve. Um, so went went to work for Robin. Uh, spent four years as the route director for the East Coast Main Line, um, very much in the early days of Network Rail, people starting to find their feet. Um, network Rail, when they'd come in, it was very much stop the rot, raise the bar, and then world-class delivery. So I joined just at the end of stop the rot. <laughs> right. and, <yeah. laughs> so, and and that was, um, that was interesting from a cultural perspective because because control had been taken away from people and accountability. And I, I, I often describe my first couple of weeks at, at my desk in York as being this steady stream of people coming up to my desk going, can we do this, Diane? You know, can I have your permission to do this? And I'm sat there going, well, I don't know what you do. <laughs> why, why do you need my permission to do that? I, you know, I know bugger all about what you're talking to me about. You know, why aren't you making that decision? It's because you know the decision making had been taken away, um, and and I understand absolutely why why that was the case. But once you take something away, it's really difficult to turn it back on again. Um, and if you take away, um, you know, if you take away kind of empowerment, and if you take away accountability, then then people lose confidence and they don't want to start making decisions again. So from a cultural perspective, it was really about you know kind of addressing sort of some of those areas. Um, giving people permission again to to have the bright ideas and want to go and get go and have a go again, um, and and just reminding people that York was a long way from London, so who's going to know anyway? <laughs> so, but, yeah, that's where my maverick side of me comes I like in. That. <laughs> you know, but but sometimes you you know you you you, you do that. Um, I think the route had also. Um, was was under quite a lot of um, scrutiny because of Hatfield, and when I joined um, the route, uh, you know there was a danger that you know so, some you know some of the previous team were, were facing prosecution, you know, and that in itself also affected people's decision making. Um, and Andrew Hinton was um, the territory maintenance director, um, you know, good good buddy of mine, and and you know, and we were like this in in terms of how we worked together. And yeah, and Andrew would go out on site quite regularly um, because sometimes you'd be doing the, you know, the testing of the track, uh, you know, checking the gauge, uh, you know, checking, and and you would get some, you know, sort of some some anomalies and results. And 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 what was happening was, you know, the guys on the ground because they were nervous were just defaulting to worst case scenarios, so they weren't doing the analytical side. And, and I can completely understand that. So Andrew used to go out, you know. And not holding hands, but just sort of saying, right, okay, talk, talk me through what you see. Right, on the basis of that, this is this is what I think you need to do. And I think we've lost a lot of that in the in the rail industry now. We've lost people like Andrew, um, you know, who who are prepared to kind of go out there and go, right, okay, so so what can you see? I'll use my experience to tell you what I can see, and you make the decision. Um, but you know, I've, I've often, you know. I've, hugely kind of respected Andrew for, for, for that approach because a lot of people have just sort of said oh we'll just you know put, put the speed restriction on you know we don't want to take the risk mm. um, but it's about use, using that that 
that that judgment sometimes and, and, and kind of common sense. I'm not sort of saying that Andrew was out there taking risks. No, he wasn't. You know, he was using his experience, he was using his knowledge and the data available to make that decision. A lot of that has now kind of come through in, in sort of some of the technology innovation that, that, that the network rail has made. So it takes takes the pressure off of the individual, but it still requires the individual to make that judgment. Um, so, so, so working on, on the East Coast mainline was great because obviously I knew a lot of the, the train operator kind of MDs. Um, and you know, trying to address sort of, you know, sort of some of the performance challenges. We had um, three or four new franchises, so I had accountability for East Midlands um, trains. When you know, fantastic Tim Shoveler kind of took took over there. So it was an exciting time. Uh, so you know, Corby new station at Corby East Midlands Parkway. You know, new a new timetable. Um, you know, it was great. Um, we also had Thameslink kicking off on on the south end of the route as well. Um, we had First Capital Connect as, as a new franchise, you know, the, the hugely challenging Elaine Holt, you know, who's a great friend of mine. But goodness me, did we used to fight like cat and dog sometimes. <laughs> you know, but that's what you need. You know, so sometimes you need to have that disruptive governance. Because it's only when you have disruptive governance do you actually kind of make change. You know, and I think sometimes we're too afraid to have that, that you know, that kind of behind the bike shed chat, you know, so, so that you can actually move things forward. You know, so so you know, rather than dancing around the bloody handbag, let's just have a straightforward discussion. Was it that you want? Was it that, that, that I want? And where can we meet in the middle? You know, and and you need to have that type of working relationship because if leaders don't get on, neither do the teams. You know, so so you, you need to be able, you know, to to be doing that kind of cabinet responsibility moving forward. But you know, it was a, a great time on the East Coast Main Line. So so much change, so much going on. They're great to be at, you know. We quite often kind of forget about key output zero um, on Thameslink, which was platform extensions, you know, getting all ready, you know, so we could start running the longer trains. You know, never mind the core section, everyone runs Thameslink as, as London Bridge. No, 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 it started a lot earlier, you know, up on the East Midlands, you know, and that was the fundamental start, you know, of, you know, of the actual kind of Thameslink programme. And it was, you know, it's fantastic to be involved with all of that and then look back and, and I travel on Thameslink now because I live on, on the GN. So actually, you know, again, you know, seeing, oh, yeah, well, I had I had something to do with, you know, getting the 700s in. And, you know, and I remember why that decision was made on, on that part of the network. And it's great to sort of see that, you know, from, from a system perspective. Um, I then went on to... Um, uh, what, what became obvious was was East Coast Mainline was, was too big. It, it was quite a big route. And with everything that was going on with Thameslink, um, it was going to be too big for sort of one one route director to manage. Um, so we uh, we we came up with a plan to split off the East Midlands and join it with HS1. <laughs> so um, and and it was called Midland and Continental. And I, and still to this day, I do not know how I managed to get that name through the sort of the network rail hierarchy because we just put it forward as. as a, you know, a bit tongue in, in cheek, and they went, Oh, yeah, that's okay. And, and like me and my team were going, <laughs> So it became Midland and, 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 and Continental. And 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 the, the link between the two was was the fantastic, the wonderful St. Pancras. Uh, so you, you came in on the East Midlands into St. Pancras, and then you could do your high speed journey out um, from St. Pancras as well. And the reason why uh, I went to do that role was A, because of Thames link, but also B because of high speed one, and we were entering a phase then of sort of some quite tricky commercial negotiations with the DFT, um, the shadow organisation HS1, and indeed Network Rail, because uh, there was an old agreement that needed to be 
modernised. It was a legacy agreement. Um, Network Rail kind of held all, all the cards, all the levers, um, so that it was fairly clear that from a regulatory perspective that was, wouldn't be allowed to continue. <laughs> so so we, we needed to move in, in into a better place, a better commercial space all round. So, uh, so I had a lot of fun uh, leading the negotiations on that one, whilst at the same time, you know, uh, dabbling with Thameslink. Well, not dabbling, but you know, be, being this sort of the operational lead for Thameslink as well. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, uh, then the lovely Derek Holmes passed away, um, and and that affected everybody in in Network Rail because Derek, Derek was, uh, you know, like the granddaddy. Um, of Robin's team, it was Derek you went to, if, you know, if you wanted advice, it was Derek that was always there, picked up the phone going, mm, noticed you were a bit off today, Diane. So it's everybody in that team at the time felt Derek's death. Um, and and it was it, it was difficult. And, and Derek was, you know, a big pair of shoes to fill, really, in terms of his knowledge and, and, and his, his enthusiasm and his drive. Um, and his, his role was left unfilled for, oh, a good many months and it was just kind of covered on an interim and and, and things started to creak a little bit from a, a national perspective so uh, so Robin asked me if I would go and do the kind of director of operations role for um, for him um, so uh, I did <laughs> um, and that was kind of quite very different because I went from having a team of you know three or four thousand <laughs> to you know, get down to a, a team at Milton Keynes. And I went from being almost like a command and control to influence and, and how can I add value to the roots. So so the, the, the key role of, of the central team was to sort of, you know, spot the national trends and then come up with a solution to sort of say, right, this is, this is kind of, you know, this is what needs to be done. So some of the areas that uh, we looked at uh, nationally, you know, at the time was the national level crossing risk reduction programme, um, the cable theft um, program, uh, where we managed to achieve a change in law, um, you know, working collaboratively with the BTP, um, and you know, all of those are things that I look back on quite proudly, thinking, yeah, you know, we did all right on that. You know, that that was the right thing to do, where we could kind of take the collective narrative and, from a central perspective, push a change so that we could add value down to the guys on the roots. So rather than doing stuff six or seven times, it just needed to be done once. And that, that's really what I, my philosophy of what a HQ role should be. You're there to serve the roots. So, so, so therefore, how can you make, uh, you know, the roots' lives easier, which means they can focus on, on operations, they can focus on the passenger and the customer. Um, so, so it's a good experience there. And the other thing that, you know, certainly I, I took on uh, as director of operations was the national media lead <laughs> for some reason. So, yeah, so so my you know my lovely mug was was on on TV quite often <laughs> and, and and on TV quite often because obviously we we had some disputes going on with signals at the time over pay ECROs as well, um, but but again it it was good experience and you know and good exposure and and also being the sort of uh, yeah just just being the national lead on on those type of things it it it, it was yeah. <laughs> challenging but. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but but also you know quite exciting as well on on, on occasion. So um, being pulled out of the front of uh, I guess the quadrant at Milton Keynes when I think we had a really bad run of dewirements um, on the west coast and the east coast one after the other, and some correspondents had joined the dots and you know and his opening salvo to me was so 
Yeah, are you running a third world railway, Diane? <laughs> so, uh, so you immediately go. So oh, I can understand why you think that, but the facts of the matter are bang, bang, bang. Um, you know, and we're really, really sorry. We've caused disruption, and we're working hard on it. You know, etc. Et, et but I mean, they were good. It was good. It's about thinking on your feet, and and certainly gave you lots and lots of experience in 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 that regard, and and pulling deeply on, you know. Uh, very angry customers on barrier lines at King's Cross and, you know, Peckham Rye, all those years of experience where you did have to think on your feet. You didn't have a manual that you could consult because you're in real time. All kind of helps in, in, in terms of being able to sort of take on those additional roles and, and, and kind of accountabilities. Um, so after, after um, my kind of role at the centre, I then went on to the West Coast Main Line. Um, so that was my last job in Network Rail, actually. So... And so I spent I spent ten years and uh, and I left Network Rail being the, the sort of uh, the route managing director for the West Coast Main Line, which I absolutely loved. Loved working uh, with Mr Bear Park uh, at Virgin, um, and you know, and my fond memories of, of there is, is how do we motivate the teams? You know, how do we motivate the teams to kind of work together? So we came up with this idea of a golden pendolino because you you probably remember Network Rail used to have a golden rabbit that used to kind of go, go around the depots for, you know, good performance. And, and Ian Coucher uh, had kind of dreamed up this idea. And it did incentivise teams to do it. And this rabbit used to travel up and down the network, <laughs> depending on who had won it. And I remember it arriving down, I think, in the East Midlands once, with a blooming tartan kilt on it, because it had been in Scotland. And, and I think that was Mr Simpson's um, idea of a joke. <laughs> so... <laughs> so <laughs> Um, so Phil Bear Park um, and I sort of said, right, we'll have a golden pendolino. So I'm thinking like this nice pendolino, like about this big. So Phil turned up in my office with this thing that was about three foot long <laughs> you know, and this tall. <laughs> I said, oh, my God. I said, it's not gold. He goes, no, but I've called it the golden pendolino. <laughs> so, but it was great because it, it incentivised the teams. Um, and I think one of our proudest moments was when Richard Branson actually agreed to come and award the Golden Pendolino to the Houston team and the track team performance. Now, now Branson doesn't do that lightly. So, so the fact that you know he came down, we were just like, wow, that's really impressive. And it was great that the team met and greeted, meted and greeted him. Phil and I were nowhere to be seen. You know, this was their moment. You know, and, and and that was fabulous. And that's very much what I like to think about my time on the West Coast. Was it's it's, it's very much you know how do you empower the teams and and, and how do you empower them to take leadership. Uh, you know, to actually, you know, put, put, put things right. So we can put the frameworks in place, the funding, you know, the equipment, etc. But but how do you bring all of that together so the system pulls in, in, in the right direction? Um, and then I ended up at GTR mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, as the chief operating officer. And I was there for two and a half, three years. Um, a fantastic role. Uh, really exciting. The first franchise to be let after the West Coast um, debacle. Um, so everybody was really, you know, on tenterhooks about if it was going to work or not, you know, and, and sort of so on and so forth. Um, and, yeah, and really, really uh, transformational stuff included uh, in the franchise agreement, uh, you know, five new fleets to be introduced, um, a new station operating model, uh, lots more drivers to be recruited. Um, uh, you know, and all of that is now being happened today, and, and has happened. And clearly, there was obviously the introduction of you know the past 700s on on Thameslink, and a complete recast of the timetable and trans and transformation. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, and then we got into dispute, 
um, with uh, first of all with the drivers and, and, and then with the RMT. Um, and then what followed really was, you know, kind of 18 months of, of hell for our passengers and, and, and also for, you know, for the team itself at GTR. Um, and yeah, they were difficult times. They were really difficult times. Um, and it was, I think it's only when you come out of it and you look back on it, you realise um, how much it did take out um, of your home life, really. Um, I didn't do anything for two years, you know, from a social perspective. And I know a lot of the guys down on GTR didn't. You know, some of the team couldn't even play cricket on a Sunday because they got so much abuse from uh, spectators. Um, you know, my, my boss at the time, Charles Horton, um, his, you know, they used to, his children used to get picked on at school. Um, and I think just, that just goes to show kind of how important <laughs> the railway is to people's lives. Um, and, you know, and I used to spend, you know, a couple of evenings a week on the barrow line at, at, at Victoria or London Bridge, um, you know, just listening to people's stories, you know, and they hadn't been getting home to put their children to bed. They'd missed reading the book, you know, to their two-year-old for five nights in a row. When you start to affect people's lives like that, you know, it's, you know, it, you, you kind of have to do something. And, and, and one of the things that, that we did um, was we put in an amended timetable. So we, we basically sort of said, look, we can't deliver this. We need to put in a resource-led timetable. We need to give passengers back certainty. And we did that. And, and that's, that's what passengers were telling us. You know, we want certainty. You know, if you're going to say you're going to run a train, we want, you know, we want to know it's going to run. <laughs> you know, even if we've got to stand all the way to Little Hampton, that's fine. At least we know we're going to get there. Um, and that's and, and that, that's by and large what we did, and you know, and the train planning team and the resources team at GTR did a fantastic job to actually kind of get that through, um, and and that gave us a little bit of breathing space while we could. Then it's a bit like kind of going back to basics. You, you then start to look at okay, so what 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 are what are the other levers that we've got in place to to enable us to you know keep running more trains, you know, even if that means buses and and and, and you, you're joining whilst in the background you're still trying to resolve the dispute with with us left and, and indeed the RMT um, and yeah did, did, did difficult times and, and you know and it's great now to sort of see GTR doing so well um, so you can sort of see where you know the new rolling stock you know has been fantastic the new timetable is fantastic you know Southern performs out of its skin most days now you know it was down at that you know high 70s the recast of the timetable the new rolling stock on Gatwick Express and, and sort of so on and so forth Massive difference, massive difference. Mm -hmm. So, so it's you know it's really good to sort of see that coming through, and it's really good to see you know the the smiles on the faces now, <laughs> of, uh, you know the you know the guys on the ground, and yeah, and I know when the uh, Thameslink timetable was introduced a couple of years ago, there was a bit of a blip, and and certainly on the GN, you know where I commute from, I used to turn up on the station and go, wonder if anything's going to turn up this morning, <laughs> um, but you know they, they got over it. You know, two, two, you know, three or four weeks, they sorted themselves out and they got over it. Um, so, you know, was it, you know, could it have been avoided? Probably. But, you know, th this was a massive transform, you know, transformative change that the industry was bringing. And I don't hear anybody talking about, you know, complaining about the timetable now. Um, you know, the capacity allocation is fantastic. You know, the reliability is is, is really good and, and, and performance is good as well. Um, so, you know, really, you know, really good, great vision being implemented and is now delivering the benefits that it originally intended to, 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 to bring. Uh, which then brings me on to HS1, really. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, so, so, so I joined HS1 um, and was a bit 
you know, it's a little bit like, hmm, okay, that's interesting. And it's, it's kind of one of those jobs when I was going through the recruitment process, I was kind of thinking, oh, I really want that job. <laughs> I really, really want that job. Kind of thing. Yeah, I really want that job. And I've spoken with Nicola Shaw, um, uh, who was the, you know, the previous year, wonderful, wonderful uh, lady, you know, fa fa fantastic individual. And, and, uh, and the way she spoke to me about HS1, I was like thinking, gosh, you know, this sounds really special and really different. Um, and I obviously kind of interviewed with the shareholders um, and very fortunate to get the job. Now, just before just before I started, I got a call that said, I would like to see you. So I was like, thinking, why is that then? You know, yeah. <laughs> something happened. Um, and, and basically, um, they, we were owned by um, pension funds. Uh, they've done a strategic review of their portfolio. And we're going to do a, a market review of HS1, which was kind of speak for we might sell it. <laughs> so right. it's just well, okay. So I've just signed up to work for you guys for the next kind of you know X number of years, and now you're selling us. Um, and Rob Holden, who was my chairman at the time, he he sort of said to me before you go in there, Diane. He goes, whatever they say to you, just smile and sort of say that's fine, because he obviously knew. And I was like, okay, Rob, I'll do that. So. <laughs> So I did that, but what a brilliant experience, you know, honestly. So uh, we were put in charge of selling the business. Okay, so we worked with, with advisors, um, uh, myself and the CFO at the time, uh, then went off on a marketing trip around Asia. Um, so I was like, you know, Japan, Korea, Hong Kong, China, and you're just like, where are we today? Um, but, you know, so that, that was my job in, you know, the first quarter that I arrived at HS1 was, was you know, to put, you know, to work with advisors and, and put that sales case together. Where else would I have that opportunity? You know, you know brilliant. Um, so we went through that and clearly, um, you know, HS1 is quite unique. It's a very different type of um, uh, kind of structure, you know, to what you see elsewhere in, in the country. We only have 55 people, 56. Um, we outsource everything. Um, and we have a big, big kind of um, shareholder oversight, you know, because obviously shareholders, you're there to deliver for your shareholders. So, you know, shareholders want you to be profitable. So, so therefore, that's, you know, what we do spend quite a lot of time doing. And then also, you know, demonstrating the benefits of, you know, the, the shareholder ownership. Um, so, sold the business, um, got through that, um, you know, did, did a few management presentations in, in front of a lot of investment funds and things at the lovely Renaissance Hotel. And, uh, uh, and we're now owned by a UK-based consortia um, of Equitix and, and Infrared. Um, and that in itself brought different challenges because 30% uh, of the investment is listed. Um, so from a stock, you know, stock, stock exchange perspective, that meant different reporting and, and different ways of you know, how, how we had to kind of equip ourselves. You know, so, so I just feel as though my brain has just kind of got bigger and bigger over the years where you have to yeah. kind of make space. Oh, okay, I need to learn this bit now. I <laughs> need to wedge that in. Um, and, and I, you know, that's when I talk about leadership, that, that's kind of one of my leadership principles is you never, ever stop learning. Mm. Um, and I was on a podcast this morning with um, two young apprentices from um, high speed, from, from HS, uh, no, from the high speed rail group um, and the apprentices cream, um, Amelia from Alstom and Hannah um from oh gosh i can't remember where she's from there but she's an assistant quantity surveyor well i felt about 80 <laughs> like talking to these 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 kind of young girls yeah 
but, but again, it's it's kind of having that kind of passion and, and kind of focus on, on, on you know, on, on kind of what the future is. What are the benefits, you know, of, of high speed rail? You know, and, and talking to these people, you know, and I feel enormously privileged that I'm, you know, I, I'm the CEO of the UK's only high speed railway and enormously privileged that, you know, I've got the opportunity to keep on learning. And it's like I said, said to the two girls this morning, you know, you never, ever stop learning because one of the things they, they asked me was, you know, what advice would you give to us? And I sort of said, be yourself and ask lots of questions, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and, and that's absolutely fundamental, you know, because if you're not asking questions, you're not learning. And if you're not asking questions, people think you're not interested. <laughs> so, you know, so, so, so always ask a question, make sure it's a good question, not a stupid question, but, you know, always be there, you know, having that kind of curiosity you know and that's that's one of the great things about robin gisby he was always curious you know? it's just like why are you asking me that you know yeah, yeah. so why have you done that then i have no but why guys <laughs> so, so so you know that that's absolutely sort of fundamental that's um, yeah so so hey just one what a terrific role i often sort of say it's, it's the best job in in uk rail um you know i get to double in europe i get to you know oversee saint pancras um you know it's you know it, it's, it's just fantastic um and you know and our, our biggest challenge now is you know how do we recover from the pandemic um absolutely uh, i think that, that's an area which i'm really keen to um to hear your views on diane because what you've just done for us and it's it's been a massive privilege to listen to to that career story because i knew bits of it but what you've just done um, is, is kind of weave so many bits of, of leadership gems into there in terms of how you empower people, how you lead people, that kind of the passion that you have for what you do is obvious to anybody who meets you, sees you, hears you, that the passion that you have for what you do is just incredible. Um, and, and, I, and what's really kind of making me think here is that when people think about a career in rail, um, you know, the, the vision that people have, you know, it's like, well, you know, are you going to drive a train or will you be working on the platform or will you be, you know, on the, a, a member of train crew, all of which are absolutely critical, obviously, to running the railway. But I think that if people listen to your career story and to hear what you've done and where you've been and the different things that you've been involved in, the massive transformation that the industry's gone through since you joined. And now we're about to go through another massive transformation. And I'm really keen to hear, if I was to, to get my magic wand out, Diane, and say to you, you can have three wishes for what the, the for these opportunities for the industry as we move forward. What would be the three things that you, you would want the industry to really focus in on to make that transformation? Um, so, so, so I think the first thing is is really just around put yourselves in in the shoes of our our future customers. So, so what do they want? But do that as an industry together. Um, and and I think there's lots of good stuff out there, but it's all piecemeal, and therefore it becomes wasted, and it doesn't become productive, and it doesn't become efficient. So, so be prepared you know, to do stuff because it's good. <laughs> don't just not do it because it's not your idea <laughs> so so and i think you know the industry has lost a lot of that it's something that british rail was brilliant at you know you know the the, the old kind of um the research divisions in in derby the technical center you know they would do the research that you know it's a bit like i was sort of saying earlier on you know the role that i had as director operations 
yeah, look at the gap, develop something, roll it out. Okay, and, and I think we've lost that. We've lost that as as, as an industry, um, and 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 it, we could be so so much better if we work together. So much more powerful, you know, so much more productive if we actually did that. And and again, that's that's what we've been trying to do at NSAR and Roots into Rail. So so let's do something once. <laughs> let's all get behind it, you know, and let's all make a difference by doing it. So 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 I think that 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 would be the first thing. Um, the second thing um, is really on the kind of the skills agenda, you know, to be frank, because when I look when I look at the future, um, uh, and I look at the the skills gap that that the industry is facing, it, it really really does scare me. Um, you know, we've we've got an aging kind of uh, profile. Uh, we've got increasing demand in work, uh, or you know, in in in, in kind of um, renewals and and, and enhancements, uh, and a huge kind of uh, digitization agenda. And we need different skill sets. We, we either need to retrain, um, recruit, <laughs> you know, and and at the moment, I don't think the industry has quite got it in, in terms of what's required. Um, so, so that would be my my kind of other magic wand, and it's sort of something that I push quite hard as as part of the Williams Review consultation. Is 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 we need to kind of have that overall kind of a academy approach again, something that BR was really good at doing um, by sort of saying, right, these are resources we need. Right, let's go and get twenty six of them, ten of them, ten of them. But again, we just do it in in, in a piecemeal way, and, and nobody really knows where, where it's going. And if you do it from an academy perspective, an industry perspective, you know, you could do what I did, you know. Back in 1986, where I spend time at a depot, I spend time with a train operator, I spend time, you know, with, with a rolling stock operator, because everybody understands they're supporting, you know, that overall kind of skills entry in, in, into the country or, you know, in, into the sector. And that, that kind of skills entry will then understand the railway as a system, not just that bit of my system in a lot of detail. And I think that that's, you know, that, that's the fundamental thing around the sort of you know the, the recruitment and the skills gap at the moment um, and then the third thing <laughs> the third thing is, is you know is really the magic wand is is for you know passengers to want to come back um, so you know whatever the marketing campaign is it's going to, have to be bloody good um, you know and it's going to have to be a combination of things around you know price um, you know reliability um, seating speed you know all of those things but because you know passengers have forgotten about us they remember the bad stuff of course they remember the bad stuff but they haven't you know they're not remember the remembering the convenience um you know and actually it's quite nice to travel by rail and again the the uh, uh the apprentice i was talking to this morning immediately says, i've got a car she goes but i much prefer to go by train she goes i can do my work i can do this i can do that but she says it's really expensive um so again you know, listen to what people are saying because you know, if you want to get people back, you're gonna to have to listen. Yeah, yeah. stop counting the penny. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's challenging, isn't it? I was um, involved in a conversation this morning where um, we were talking about fares reform and the fact that um, the people with much more um, of an inside knowledge than I have were saying that the department are all up for it. They understand the need for fares reform. We know season tickets are no longer valid. You know, it's it's not a model that we can go back to. Um, but I think the, the challenge we've got there is that the Treasury are not quite with the programme yet. Um, and because obviously there's such a lot of money from Treasury from, from the public purse being spent on rail at the moment, 
and there seems to be a little bit of a, a kind of battle going on in terms of what we can do yeah. but, yeah. but I, I agree with you it's too expensive they're not going to come back no and and you've got to think about um, what rail does as an economic as you know as, a, as an economic driver and you know and it does you know high speed rail drives you know economies it creates economies and and we've seen that just on on, on high speed one um, we did a economic socio-economic impact study just over 18 months ago because uh, people always just sort of say so what's high speed rail ever done for us <laughs> so i was like well i can tell you now because i've done the study and uh, you know so we, yeah we can use statistics like well it brings two billion a year you know in into the uk economy through tourism two billion right because people travel to london you know from north america from china you know and they want to do the short hop across to paris you know they, they do that that's part of their itinerary um, it's taken 66,000 flights a year, you know, out of the air. You know, 750,000 tonnes of carbon. You know, don't we have a big sustainability agenda going on at the moment? So, so when I'm having conversations with people about that, I, I often talk about, are you prepared to lose that opportunity, you know, just because, just because you're counting the pennies today? You know, and, and, and that's the story that we should be telling as an industry. You know, we, we shouldn't be shy you know that we're costing a lot of money we should be celebrating the fact that we're you know we're drivers of economies you know we can support you know the the urgent sustainability agenda you know and decarbonization yeah and that's our role to play and that's what we ought to be pushing and we ought to be an awful lot more noisy about it yeah i couldn't agree more i could not agree more um you've given us loads diane in terms of uh leadership as we've gone through and there'll be things that you know you've you've, you've named lots of people that have been really influential in terms of your career who you've worked with and who you've learned from is there anything that stands out for you as kind of um i know you've talked a lot about empowerment you've talked about trust you've talked about giving people that opportunity even though for, from the outside perspective, they might not be quite ready for it, but you've let them kind of show what they were, what they're made of, and, and let them get on with it. What would you say if you wanted to be known for one thing in terms of your leadership style? What would it be? Oh, I don't know. Let me think. <laughs> um. Oh. Well, I don't know, Nina. That's a really difficult question. Well, that's a hard one, isn't it? It is a hard one because there's I so think, much to choose from. Yeah, I, I think um, I think someone who's prepared to make decisions, um, and I think that's quite relevant today, <laughs> um, because we need decisions. Yeah, and and there's an awful lot of indecision out there at the moment, and you know, and, and a lack of decision making. Um, and I remember when I first went um, back to Arriva Trains in Auburn. And uh, and I I made a decision on something, and one of the ops managers there is is kind of like you know along in the tooth, been there a long time, but he just sort of said, "Thank God, someone's made a decision," yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and we uh, really need that. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah. And, and sometimes that's all you need, you know. And and at the moment we get a lot of oh maybe or well, it's got to go here, it's got to go there, you know. Mm. And we just need decisions. <laughs> Yeah, let's have a meeting about a meeting about another meeting. But actually, no, let's yeah. let's make a decision and get on yeah. with it. Yeah. Um, and finally, and and you've just it's been a massive privilege to to listen to this story. And I could actually just had a city of a few more hours yet. I've got loads of questions, <laughs> but we have got a time limit. Then I'm going to bring it to a close with one last final question. Um, I always like to ask my guests whether they have a favourite quote. 
something which you kind of go to um it might it might perk you up it might kind of ground you it might inspire you is there something that you go back to time and time again diane in terms of a, a favorite quote so well, i've got quite a few many from my gran actually <laughs> so, right, <brilliant. laughs> she, she, she's usually the one but no um the one i'm using at the moment um and i think it's quite relevant um is hope is the agent of change right i love that fantastic absolutely brilliant and i do i mean um this podcast will whilst we've recorded it just before christmas it will be uh, the first intuitive insights podcast of 2021 and i think what an amazing quote to start with hope is the agent of change fantastic yeah, thank, I love that. Albert, thank you so much for joining me i really appreciate you taking the time for sharing your story for being so open and i already know that you were going to be inspiring lots of people who are listening into this so thank you Thanks, Nina. My huge thanks to Diane for sharing her thoughts and her insights in terms of leadership, the railway industry and the future opportunities that lie ahead. The next episode of Intuitive Insights will be with you in two weeks' time when I'm joined by John Beach, Managing Director of Talgo UK. Whenever I speak to John and I ask him how he is, he always tells me he's living the dream. Some people say that with their tongue in the cheek, but John definitely means it. I'm really looking forward to welcoming him to the podcast.